0: It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. I am so grateful to the New York Times with its vast international resources to find the one angle on the coronavirus that many of us have really been hungering for. The headline How Marie Kondo Declutters During a Pandemic. Now, seriously, haven't you been sitting around your house wondering, how can I declutter this place? Because I don't have anything else to think about and I don't have anything else to do. By the way, the article didn't really even answer that. It was more of a diary where she talked about making Japanese breakfast for her family and when she had drinks tea and when she answers emails. It sounds like she's like the rest of us. Not that much to do. Went to the dentist. That was something. Okay, Bloomberg is reporting that Kale is out. Popcorn and Spam are in in a stark reversal. American shoppers who are taking up healthier eating are gravitating back to old ways as they hunger down to weather the coronavirus pandemic. They're loading up on shelf-stable items from canned meat and soup to pretzels and, this is one of my personal favorites, Kraft macaroni and cheese. Uh, okay, they want comfort food. It makes sense. The company that makes Oreos says uh, sales are up in uh, cookies and crackers, popcorn sales up almost 48%, pretzels 47%, potato chips surged 30%. Uh, just trying to give you all of the uh, information here. So uh, let's go to some presidential tweets before we really drill down onto some of our topics today. Hope you had a good weekend wherever you are and wherever you are stuck, which is, I guess, sort of the operative way to put things these days. Uh, the president now concerned by the economy, he tweets: "We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself." At the end of the 15-day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. Well, things are not going to be that much better at the end of this 15-day period, which is about another week. Uh, that I just think is optimistic. Um, mm-hmm. The president has been retweeting, including a tweet from a sex counselor, Dr. Don Michael. The fear of the virus cannot collapse our economy that President Trump has built up. So nothing about sex, but interesting uh, how that happened. Um, And a really serious one about the media. And you can tell, and I dealt with this on Media Buzz yesterday, we had a kind of a shortened show because Andrew Cuomo has been briefing every day and Fox took much of that briefing. Uh, But we did uh, get into the president attacking the New York Times, and the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal and NBC's Peter Alexander last week. So here's the tweet, the new tweet. I watch and listen to the fake news, CNN, MSDNC, ABC, NBC, CBS, some of Fox, parentheses, desperately and foolishly pleading to be politically correct. The New York Times and the Washington Post and all I see is hatred of me at any cost. Don't they understand that they are destroying themselves? You know, the president first used that word, candidate Trump used that word with me in an interview back in 2016. I remember being so struck by it um, that he thinks that's the thought that then that some of these uh, commentators hated him. And I think in some cases now it's true, but I think he uses it to paint too broad a brush. It's not that everyone in the media hates him. It's that a lot of people do critical reporting that he doesn't like. Um, and I think the frustration is getting to him because, you know, this tweet obviously, um, kind of tells the story. Now I had White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham on the show yesterday and I said to her, look, why does the president shifted his tone? And I said, I'm welcoming this, but he's taking it so much more seriously now. And I played a bunch of clips and you've all seen them or read about them where he said, we've got it under control. It's one person from China. We're in good shape. We're doing a great job. And she said, oh, I don't really see a shift. Um, And then I pushed back and said, you know, everybody has seen these clips, many have written stories. The president has said, you don't take my word for it to many people that earlier he was not where he is today in terms of his full scale mobilization. And her response was, well, the virus wasn't where it was today at the beginning either. And I will also say, I don't know why the media has to continue to look backwards. I take her point we're in the middle of a crisis, but, you know, There were a lot of predictions by a whole lot of medical experts two months ago that tougher measures were needed. And it's part of our job to hold the president accountable. Now, do some people go too far? And are they um, filled with animus toward President Donald Trump? Yeah. Uh, Stephanie also telling me the president didn't have a crystal ball. Uh, He has acted appropriately from the beginning. Um, And then she talked about the Peter Alexander question where he asked about the president, are you giving false hope? Uh, to people with these two malarial drugs uh, that may or may not work against the virus. And she called that question wildly inappropriate. She says it's uh, the president's job to try to calm the American people. Well, Alexander did say, what would be your message to millions of scared Americans? Uh, She also called on journalists to set aside their bias against this president And they need to do what this White House is doing and show leadership and try to get information to the American public. Well, that leads me to story number one. I'm pretty hepped up about this, and I'm going to write my column about it later today. Um, Rachel Maddow went on the air. I I believe I did briefly mention this to uh, Stephanie Grisham, who was not pleased. And look, I respect Rachel Maddow. She's really smart, Rhodes Scholar, you know, fierce liberal, despises Donald Trump. And all that's baked into the cake. But this really struck me. And there have been other um, commentators on the left who are now embracing, this is kind of the cool thing to say now, what Rachel had to say to her MSNBC viewers in prime time. She says, and I'll just read you some of the quotes to be fair to her case. Um, I'm just saying, I feel we should inoculate ourselves against the harmful impact of these ongoing false promises and false statements by the president by recognizing that when he's talking about the coronavirus epidemic, more often than not, he is lying. Even when he's talking about what he has done or what he will do, he's consistently lying and giving you happy talk. That is stuff that the federal government isn't actually doing. She goes on to say, there may be other people in the government saying things that are true, but these daily briefings from the White House are a litany of things from the president that would be awesome if they were true, They were happening, but they're not. And then uh, comes the kicker, or the main point. She says, if it were up to me, and it's not, because she doesn't run MSNBC, I would stop putting those briefings on live TV. Not out of spite, but because it's misinformation. If the president does end up saying anything true, you can run it as tape. But if he keeps lying like he has been every day on this stuff, important— we should, all of us, stop broadcasting it. Honestly, it's going to cost lives. Honestly, that's about the worst suggestion I've ever heard. Uh, Washington Post columnists has embraced it. Other people are just saying, well, maybe the president shouldn't appear. Look, pe- liberals are supposed to be champions of free speech. And here you have some prominent liberals saying, well, the president doesn't deserve to get free speech because he puts out lies and misinformation. So we should censor him. We should just black out these briefings. We shouldn't carry it. If he happens to say something that's rational or coherent, oh, we can report on it later. And think about how condescending that is. What it's saying is, you know, we, the pundits, the commentators, the, the smart journalists, you know, we understand when we watch these briefings um, that some of this is exaggerated or not true, or overly optimistic. And we will watch it for you. You don't get to watch it. And then we will tell you uh, what was wrong and what was right. And if the president happens to say something that makes sense, we'll tell you. And otherwise, we'll just filter it out. It's censorship. I mean, it's not censorship in the sense that the president of the United States can still go to the White House and give a briefing. But, you know, you'd be depriving millions of people who watch these things just as they watch Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who I'll talk about later, um, on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox News. Um, And I I just can't wrap my head around the notion that, um, look, people are smarter than some of these pundits give them credit for. They know that sometimes Trump is putting a positive spin on things. They know that sometimes he says things that are factually inaccurate or he's just throwing out hope, these malarial drugs, maybe they'll work, maybe they won't work. He did say maybe it won't work. Uh, They know that he exaggerates sometimes. They know that he's being contradicted at times Uh, by Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has enormous credibility on this subject. And the New York Times reports that the president's getting a little peeved at Fauci, but Fauci is doing his job. And so what I say is, Journalists should do their jobs. If they think the president isn't being straight, the American people then say so. If they think he says things that aren't true, then say so. If they think that he has uh, spent too much time minimizing and is is late to the party here, or he is pushing off on the states the need to uh, get masks and ventilators and respirators into the hands of healthcare providers and hospitals and doctor's offices, then they can say that. They can criticize all they want. They do every day. They've been doing it since the day he did. Declared, But if you say that he can't communicate, that he's the elected president, you don't like him, you wanted him impeached and convicted, he got impeached, but he was acquitted, that if he can't communicate, that cable TV should just ban him? I truly think that's not just an awful idea, but I think it's, it's, it's hypocritical and condescending because it assumes that people are not smart enough to make up their own minds. And by the way, there's this ABC poll. It shows the president's uh, approval rating on handling the coronavirus to have gone up to 55 percent, 43 percent disapproved. A week ago, a little over a week ago, it was flipped. It was the other way around. So he's come up 10 or 11 points. So does that mean that people are just falling for his BS? Is that what, what some of these liberal commentators are, are trying to say? And I, um, I'm just not going to buy that. It goes against the grain of what I believe as a citizen As a journalist, I think it's a really bad suggestion. And I think it's partisan. The people who are saying this are the people who do have animus toward Donald Trump, who cringe when they see Donald Trump on TV. So let's just keep him off TV. He shouldn't be allowed to communicate uh, with the American people. So what? The the people who believe him, the stuff he says, they don't know. They don't know any better. They need to rely on us. Uh, And so that's what I'm going to be writing about today. Story number two. Here's New York Times saying, Can Trump save his campaign for re-election when so much is suddenly going so wrong? Now, this is a legitimate thing to talk about because we are, of course, in the middle of an election campaign. Uh, So some of these points are valid. After three years of Republicans championing signs of financial prosperity, that would be Trump's chief election argument, uh, re-election argument, the president has never needed a new message to voters as he does now. Not to mention luck. At this point, the president has one clear option for how to proceed politically, hoping that an array of factors will break his way. In other words, that just things go well. Uh, He is casting himself as a wartime president. That is true. He has used that phrase. Who looks uh, in charge of a nation under siege, while Joe Biden is largely out of sight, hunkered down in Delaware. We'll come back to Biden in a moment. This gambit requires a rewriting of history. uh, Trump's muted approach to the virus early on, the New York Times notes, and it's far from clear if many voters will accept the idea of him as a wartime leader. Um, Now, it says, well, things might get better. The warmer months, the virus might start to dissipate. The steps that he's taken so far, the government has taken so far could flatten the curve. Uh, They're also hoping that Biden and the Dems will look impotent and inconsequential during this crisis. Um, But that's a lot. That's a big gamble. Uh, So perhaps uh, the paper says the best case scenario for Trump is that being a wartime president could prove influential with casual voters who don't dig into the details. That's kind of the code for like you don't really know what's going on because you're just too busy working and trying to raise your families. Um, And then it mentions the ABC poll. 55% approval, so that's good. Um, And, you know, but meanwhile, people are going to see the effect on their 401ks and their retirement plans and all of that. Uh, So, Republican officials, the story says, are banking on voters seeing him as take charge in contrast to those Democrats who don't really control anything. Meanwhile, Congress, you know, as I'm speaking to you now, still hasn't agreed on the bailout package that. The, the the cost of which is edging up toward two trillion dollars. There's some fundamental disagreements about how this money should be spent. The markets are down again at this moment for that reason. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So story number three, former Vice President Joe Biden, and this is sort of the flip side story in The Times, um, he was asked a question Sunday, did a virtual fundraiser uh, that reflected, you know, the changing state of his campaign. Um, One of the donors said, what I'm concerned about is we see Donald Trump every day with this crisis, giving his press report, and I would just love to see you more. Like, how do we get more of you and less of him on our airwaves? Well, you don't get less of him. He's the president. Um, Biden, the story acknowledges, has been taunted by online critics over his relatively low profile since the virus forced him off the campaign trail. Uh, The Trump campaign is pushing a where is Joe hashtag like he's just sort of vanished. Um, he hasn't been on camera in front of the public since he did that live stream address when he won those primaries. This is just six days ago now, Florida, Illinois, Arizona. And it was a really shaky live stream. It was really lousy quality. Um, so they say they're working on turning his Delaware home into a television studio so you'd have higher quality. He says he's going to do, um, he did do a conference call report is he's going to do, um, Some sort of video briefing every day on the virus, how he would handle it, what criticisms he has. I suppose that might get some attention. I saw one of these on Twitter. It was he was reading off a prompter. He stumbled a couple of times, but so what? Um, And he had a very sharper message, I thought. And it wasn't too long. So that so he needs to find a way just to stay in the news. I'm um, just reading here more. Uh, Biden gave a speech about coronavirus this month. But, you know, it's kind of like trees in a forest. You know, if you're the former vice president of the United States, he's not officially the Democratic nominee. Bernie Sanders is still hanging around. Um, Bernie has a much better infrastructure and, you know, abilities to use his digital footprint to weigh in on the virus. Plus, he's a United States senator. He actually has a role here. Biden doesn't really have a role, but he's not quite the leader of the party, although he is de facto because he hasn't quite clinched a nomination. And in part of that is because all these states are canceling and postponing primaries. So it's tough for Joe Biden, whether you like Joe Biden, or you don't like Joe Biden. Um, ordinarily, you know, if there was not in this situation, I mean, Trump would obviously have the bigger megaphone as an incumbent president. But every day, Journalists would you know, be following him around and he would stop and talk and he'd give speeches and he'd go to rallies. None of that's happening. Obviously, the president not able to do any rallies either. Story number four involves Rand Paul. Now, I've known, I have know Rand Paul. I've interviewed him several times. He is somebody who uh, specializes in pissing off his colleagues because sometimes he'll filibuster or slow things down with amendments that are not going to pass. He's kind of a one-man band when it comes to his libertarian Version of Republicanism, but the Kentucky senator has now tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, he didn't think he was in contact with anybody, but he's been traveling or not. And he's a doctor, he's an eye surgeon, and he's now in quarantine. And I wish him well, wish him a speedy recovery, as I would anybody of any political party or any profession who gets this. Um, you know, this is not unknown in the media business now. I mentioned earlier that I know journalists who have gotten the virus and there are four people at Fox News in New York who have gotten the virus and they are in quarantine. And so are the teams that work with them, including Lou Dobbs uh, of Fox Business. So, you know, this, you know, when you know somebody, you know of somebody and somebody you've interviewed, obviously it feels more personal. But man, people are PO'd about this because a few hours before he got the positive diagnosis, but when he had enough concern to be tested he was in the Senate gym and he was near other senators. And so, just as a result of, of, of uh, Rand Paul's announcement, two other Republican senators, Mitt Romney and Mike Lee, have put themselves into quarantine because they had contact with Senator Paul, stepping away from the negotiations as the Senate is trying to work out uh, this deal between Democrats and Republicans. Um, they obviously must be considering remote voting because how can you now continue to get 100 senators together? Well, 99, and if you've got uh, Mitt and Mike Lee also quarantined, then you've got 97. And what if this spreads? Uh, Democratic senator from Arizona, uh, Kirsten Sinema, she chastised Paul on Twitter. She said that she's never criticized another senator's actions, but what he did... Uh, To return to the Capitol after being tested before the diagnosis, she says, was absolutely irresponsible. Um, This was mentioned to President Trump uh, that the two other senators had also quarantined themselves. And he said, Mitt Romney in isolation, gee, that's too bad. A little bit of sarcasm, not much. Sympathy for the one Republican senator who voted to convict him uh, during the Senate impeachment trial. Again, I'm not happy. And I don't care if you like Rand Paul's politics or you don't like Rand Paul's politics. It is it is tough to see anybody get this, but particularly somebody in public life who has contact with other people in public life. I and mean, this happened at the CPAC conference where people had to self-quarantine because they thought they might have come into contact with somebody who did end up having it. Every business now is facing this, the politics business, the, the, the media business, um, the entertainment business. Andy Cohn, of Bravo was going to try to do his show from home. Now he's tested positive for the virus. So the show, I guess, is going on on hiatus. I mean, there's no corner of American life, whether you're Tom Hanks or Andy Cohn or Rand Paul uh, or or a journalist, um, where you're completely safe from this. And that's why taking these steps and telling people, as Andrew Cuomo did, um, to you know stop flooding into Central Park, you saw it here in D.C., lots and lots of people walking near each other for the, the viewing of the cherry blossoms, which are gorgeous, you know, down by the mall and, and the Capitol. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not safe. And a lot of younger people are like, well, nothing's going to happen to me. But you know, even if nothing happens to them, they're putting other people in danger. Which brings me to Governor Cuomo, who took up a bit, bit of my show uh, yesterday. Um, just saw him on TV again. He is briefing every single day and he's getting a lot of Positive reviews, even from people who don't like Andrew Cuomo, who don't like Democrats, who don't like his politics. It's a different style than Donald Trump. It's a far more personal style. Um, He talks a lot about how he hasn't seen his daughter. For a couple of weeks uh, because she is in isolation and how hard that is on him but they talk now and they talk about things they haven't talked about before because they didn't have time and um, calling his mother so he makes it very personal he also says he, he actually said and you rarely see a politician say things he says now that he's gone to 100%, except certain industries have been exempted, including the media business, but also hospitals, police, fire, you know, essential services, from 100% of workers have to work at home under the new state edict from Governor Cuomo. He says, if you want to blame somebody, blame me. I'm the one who made the decision. Uh, also today, you know, the president got a lot of flack for... Um, uh, those two, for talking up the prospects that maybe those two malaria drugs could work on the coronavirus. Cuomo's happy about this. He's allowing these drugs to be tested in New York uh, with the FDA to do those trials starting tomorrow. This Washington Post piece says that... Um, uh, You know, Cuomo and Trump had really been at it. I mean, two New Yorkers, both from Queens, you know, they they have that way of mixing it up. They were taunting each other on Twitter. Uh, Take the politics out of it, Trump said. Cuomo said, "Uh, I should do my job. How about you do your job? You're the president. But in recent days, I've noticed this even before seeing anybody write about it. He's starting to say much more positive things about the president. He said he was grateful to the president for sending a military hospital ship to New York, there are two of them, and the other one's going to California. Apparently, it's not going to arrive now for another four weeks. That's distressing. Uh, the governor thanked, this is just yesterday, the FDA uh, for uh, providing more medical supplies. Um, and the moves, says the Washington Post, are a calculated bet from Cuomo that Trump, who cares deeply about his news coverage and his public image, just like every other politician, uh, will be more likely to assist his longtime home, of New York if he receives praise and opportunities to secure positive news coverage for its actions, for his actions. And it's working. Trump said yesterday the relationship has really been amazing. He was talking about how many times now he's been talking to Cuomo. Because, look, whether you like Cuomo or you don't like Cuomo, New York State, and especially New York City, is now the epicenter, one-third of of all the cases in the country. People close to the governor telling the Washington Post Cuomo is willing to praise Trump as long as he is getting attention from the federal government. So far, Cuomo advisors say the call, their calls have been returned immediately. And that's fascinating. So, you know, I often talk about how I first interviewed Donald Trump back in the late 1980s when his book, The Art of the Deal, uh, came out and I was a reporter based in New York. Well, during that same time period, I first got to know Andrew Cuomo. At the time, um, he was the son of Governor Mario Cuomo. Mario Cuomo was, um, let's see, at that point in his second term, this is 1988, he had delivered a Bafo speech uh, to the Democratic Convention. He was probably the most eloquent Democrat on the national stage, but he decided against running for president in 88. And Andrew Cuomo was 30 years old. He, had, he was up to his eyeballs in politics. He had been his father's campaign manager. And it served as an unofficial aide. But then he went out on his own and joined the law firm. And he launched this project uh, to provide housing for the homeless. Um, and uh, he was able to build, you know, it didn't hurt that his dad, the governor, mentioned this project in his State of the State speech. He was able to get the the state finance agency to provide some backing for it. And he built a 200-unit um, apartment complex in Brooklyn, that got rave reviews because it had a lot of social services and so forth. But then he tried to expand this to the suburbs. And he went up to um, Westchester County, north of New York City, and tried to build one there. And there was all kinds of community opposition uh, people saying, We don't want this here, we don't want these homeless people there, there are problems. And I interviewed him then. And I remember, you know, he sound he sounded uh, exactly like his father. He just had the same Queen's cadences. He picked me up in his car. And he drove me out to the East New York section of Brooklyn to look at this facility. And he, you know, just like he does now, like he really understood government. And he talked at great length about how you need social services and how people think they're just homeless bums and drunks. But really, most of the people who are in these projects that he was trying to build are single mothers on welfare. Um, and he made a good case for it, but nevertheless, you know, there were a lot of fear and he understood that. He said to me, um, these projects, talking about putting, why he put putting it in the suburbs, are necessarily going to be near a fairly nice residential area. I don't want a site in the middle of nowhere because it won't work. These people don't have cars. So at the end of the interview, I said to him, well, aren't you just using this, um, not just to help your father, the governor, obviously, but also to launch a political career of your own? He said to me, I have no future plans for elective office. I think I'm making a contribution now. And then he kind of smiled and said, I feel like Mario talking about the presidential race because he was going to run, he was going to run, and then he wasn't going to run. And besides, Andrew Cuomo told me, this is three decades ago, you make a lot of enemies with a program like this. If I had done this as an elected official, I'd be a one-term elected official. So I just raise all this um, to make the point that Andrew Cuomo has been doing this a long time. So when he talks... Uh, knowledgeably about government programs and, um, what's needed and, and, and makes it more personal. You know, this guy's grew up on politics, been around politics his whole life. Um, And he didn't, even though he said, I have no future plans for elective office, I mean, we all knew he would run for office eventually, but he didn't run for office for many years. He became Bill Clinton's Housing and Urban Development Secretary. And then once his father was out of office, he never told me this, and I never read this, but I think he didn't want to run while his dad was in the governor's mansion in Albany. Uh, That's when he ran, um, eventually for governor, got his clock cleaned, uh, and had to bow out of the primary race in 2002 uh ran and one for state attorney general and then finally one for governor and he's now been the governor for nine years and I think It's really something you would think that Joe Biden, as the as the all but certain presidential nominee for the Democrats, would be getting all this attention uh, as the opposite number for Trump. But no, Andrew Cuomo, who's not running, uh, is getting a 100 times more attention because everybody's taking these briefings live. He is the governor of the state that's hardest hit. And politics works in strange ways. You know, Um, he kind of looked like uh, an uncertain kid when he first ran for governor. Maybe it was too early. And now, again, a lot of people think he's too liberal. A lot of people don't like his style. He's kind of like an LBJ Democrat. He twists a lot of arms. Uh, He works the machinery. He can be tough on allies as well as enemies. Um, But he's getting a whole lot of attention. Uh, I hope uh, these podcasts are helpful. I got a message from somebody who works in... in the White House that they're stuck at home and have been listening and and like it. I'm sure they don't like everything I say. Uh, Even my family doesn't like everything I say. But I think all of us uh, need to do what we can uh, when Fox needs me on television, I go down to the studio. Otherwise, I'm uh, here in the home bureau writing columns, doing podcasts, doing radio commentaries and trying to uh, be part of the conversation. I will remind you, as always, that you can let me know what you think at Howard Kurtz on Twitter or go to Apple iTunes or Google Play or foxnewspodcast.com dot com. And we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.